listening to the best bits of the Breakfasters from 3RRR. to Breakfasters here on Triple R. The Wheeler Centre is running a series entitled Dead Calm, Honest Conversations About Death. As part of that, they're presenting tonight an event entitled Grief, in which Hilary Harper will be hosting a conversation between grief counsellor Eliza Henry-Jones, medical anthropologist Gregory Phillips, and our next guest, community health worker, author, and death talker, Molly Carlyle. Welcome to Breakfasters. <laughs> Thanks for having me. As listeners just heard in the blurb for the event, you're featured as a death talker. You have a book out with that title. It's also the URL of your website. What is a death talker? Well, I think it's self-explanatory. <laughs> <laughs> I, um, I talk about death. I've, I've worked in palliative care my whole career. I started off as a nurse and then became a counsellor and a teacher. And now I'm CEO of uh, a large community palliative care service. So I've really spent my whole life working with dying and grieving people. And for me, the most obvious thing is that we don't talk about death. We don't talk about grief. And when people are confronted with a terminal diagnosis or someone close to them dies, suddenly um, the world goes into a spin and their usual anchor points tend to disappear. Mm. The tonight's event is about grieving specifically. Mm. Is there a right way to grieve and a wrong way? Do people just stumble on as best they can? There's, look, over the years, Jeff, there's evolved this idea that there's a, there's a normal grieving process. There isn't. The normal grieving process is doing what's normal for you. So some people get angry, some people get sad, some people uh, get withdrawn and don't want to have anything to do with anyone else. Um, And that's okay because that's their way of doing it. And generally you can tell if someone is managing their grief in their own way by looking at how they manage other stresses. So if they manage stress in their life by getting angry, generally they'll get angry when they're grieving. And other people look at that and say, oh, um, you know, Jeff's really angry and (laughs) I haven't seen him cry so he really needs some help. Well, no, Jeff's probably dealing with it in the way he deals with other life-changing stress Um, and so that's normal for him. So it's not up to us to judge what's the right or wrong way for someone to grieve. It's up to us as a community to pull together and enable whatever needs to happen to happen. A lot of cultures have ceremonies that kind of, uh, I don't know, assist grieving in some way, whether Mm. it's spending time with family for a certain period of time after someone's passed away. We don't have so many, um, other than kind of funerals and eulogising someone, we don't really have those kinds of things in our lives now. Has that affected the way that we grieve as a community? I think I think that's affected it enormously, Sarah. Yeah. And I think you can you can connect that with the secularisation of 
of our communities, which isn't a bad thing. It, mm. It's just how it is. But, you know, a 100 years ago, people were really involved with their church communities and church communities had a very um, ritualised way of acknowledging death and that was the whole point of having a funeral, was not really for the person who died but was to say to the the, the family around that person, um, we acknowledge your loss and we're here to support you. And now because we don't have those structures, um, you know, we have alternate structures but they're a lot more free-flowing and often people go to the funeral and then they go away and they get on with their lives and the grieving family members go, well, hell, what do we do now, you know? And for the people who are around them, they don't know how to respond. So they tend to head for the hills because yeah. <laughs> they don't know what to say and they're scared of saying the wrong thing so they don't say anything. And that's really the worst thing that can happen because the person or people who are grieving feel like their usual support networks have just disintegrated, you know? What is the right thing to say to someone that is grieving? The right thing is to let go of everything you think and just speak from the heart. Mm -hmm. So if you're feeling really nervous about it and you don't know what to say, that's what you say. So I would say to you, Geraldine, oh, God, I, I just don't know what to say, but I'm here for you mm. and what can I do to help? And it might be really simple things like could you make me a cup of tea mm. or it might be can you pick the kids up from school for a couple of weeks or can you mow the lawns for me? You know, those practical things for... Um, people who like to fix stuff is a good way of channeling their energy into doing something positive instead of them sitting by you saying, oh, well, life goes on and, you know, all those euphemisms and platitudes people give you when someone close to you dies. Do we know much about the circumstances that make grieving easier? Like, for instance, does it make a difference if you get a chance to say goodbye to the person? That's often something people talk about. Or are there other circumstances that can change the experience of someone dying and the way we respond to it? That's a really good question, Jeff. Um, there are about 12 indica- indicators that um, that tell us as clinicians that someone is at risk of complicated grief. Now, 5% of people have a complicated grief experience and it's usually for thing for reasons like um, the person has taken a really long time to die and the family's sitting around the bed and that's dragging on and on and on and they just go, oh, God, I wish Mum had just, you know, take her last breath. And then when she does, they feel guilty that oh. they thought that, <laughs> you know. So it's really complicated. Um, you know, sudden death can be a risk. Uh, death of a child, of course, is always a risk. So knowing that for everybody, the death of somebody that they love is going to be really confronting. The important thing to do if you've got pre-warning is to enable them to do whatever it is that's important for them to do at the time. So our response in helping people helping people get through the dying part, especially if you know it's going to happen, um, is exactly the same as our response should be after the person's died. Do what you need to do right now and we're here to support you as your as your network, as your family, as your friends, as your community. 
You've written books to talk about grief uh, and death with children and mm. adolescents and adults. How does the grieving process or how does grief change between age groups, if at all, or is it always the same experience but through a kind of different lens? Children under 12 don't really get the whole idea of death being permanent. So when someone close to them dies, um, they can, you know, they often think that the person's going to come back, um, that they've gone away and they've come back. And that's where language is so important. When grown-ups say to children, oh, mummy's just gone to heaven or mummy's, you know, on a cloud or whatever... A seven-year-old thinks, oh, yeah, mummy's just gone to hang around in a cloud for a while and she'll be back. So talking about the permanency to them is is an important thing to help them come to terms with the fact that mum's not coming back, um, but in a way that doesn't talk down to them but that also is... is acknowledging their level of of cognitive development at that stage. Now, if you're not an early childhood educator, you might go, oh, God, well, how do I know what that is? <laughs> Let the children guide you. Children will ask the questions they need the answers to and the problem happens when adults go, oh, God, I don't know how to answer that. Um, look, I'm just busy right now. You just run outside and play and we'll talk about it later and then it doesn't happen. Or the children never see the grown-ups around them sad. Yeah, right. Because um, the grown-ups hide it because they don't want to upset the kids. But the kids think, well, I feel really sad and yet my dad, dad's never cried or dad's not acting any different and yet mum's gone, you know. Yeah. So it's, it's all, it's so easy you just got to get rid of all the crap yeah. <laughs> and just just go with what you feel and you'll never make a mistake but we're so we're so hung up on doing the right thing and not doing the wrong thing that we don't do what we inherently know is the right thing so if listeners um, are hearing this and they're having problems with grief or they know someone who is having problems with grief, where should they go? Well, look, there's a lot of places you can go. The first place I'd be going is to someone that I really, really trust, someone that I can sit down and have a good conversation with. It may not be your next-door neighbour or your friend. It may be your GP or it may be someone you work with or it may be someone you know who has had a significant grief experience themselves because they've been through it and they've probably come across all the things that, that you're coming across. But if you find you're feeling um, incredibly depressed or, or um, suicidal or any of those things, you need to act on that quickly and, you know, calling Lifeline or the, the Grief Helpline. Um, compassionate friends are great, are great support um, but for most people, that's not the case. Um, most people, the the best resource for them is someone close to them that they can trust and talk to. The event tonight is entitled Grief. It's on at the Wheeler Centre. The book is entitled The Death Talker. We've been talking to its author, Molly Carlyle. Thanks so much for coming in. My pleasure. An iconic soundtrack like Psycho as well. Yeah, it's amazing. And right at the end, the conductor pulled out a knife. It was great. Really? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> 
I bet he'd just been waiting the whole time. Oh, <laughs> yeah. Can I bring the knife out yet? Can I bring the knife yeah. out? Uh, <laughs> speaking of knives, let's talk about Toro Tuesday. Or First no, World Tuesday, as yeah, we call it. First World Tuesday. It's also oh, known as. call it that, then. Um, <laughs> sure. <laughs> Sarah, do you want to do you want to go first? Oh sure. Oh, you know what? I was actually going to talk about something you that, know too that happened in yoga again last night. Oh uh, dear! But I thought I've already done a yoga one, but I will carry it on anyway. Last night we did go to Yin Yoga, and uh, it's we, my teacher decided to kind of do some more like internal kind of stretching and trigger point stuff so where you, oh. you're, you're sitting on things and they're poking into your muscles for three minutes. Oh. It's, yeah, it's very it's really painful, but I feel like I've had Is today... Nice, yeah, today I feel like I've had the best full body massage. But there's a lot of like... Do you sitting, think that helped you sleep, be, sleep better as well? Definitely. And mm. my body is not hurting. It feels great. But one of the moves was a bit difficult. You have to kind of uh, put this block in your back. The block's probably... 30 or 40 centimetres off the ground and you Mm -hmm. kind of hang over it and don't do this at home, everybody. And there was a point halfway during that where I thought maybe I'd hit a nerve and that my face had collapsed (laughs) because I was in... Because they always say to you there's there's like to find the edge of pain in yin. So you have to know when what pain is pain and what pain is Uh, not pain, if that makes sense. So what's damage? What's damage? And there was a moment where I was lying over this block with my chest in the air and I thought... I think that maybe I'm poking into a nerve and the left side of my face has gone numb. And I was trying to hit it, but also not do it. Oh, I not wish, do it really I wish obviously. There was video of this. I, my friend Jack afterwards said, I wish there was a camera over the top of your body as you tried to slap your face to see if your face had gone numb because you hit a nerve. It was so embarrassing. Was and every, the teacher would look and go, Is everything okay? And I'll go, Fine, no problems. And then he'd look away and I'd be slapping my face again. You, you, but you were able to talk normally. Yeah, but where's the angle you're on? Because your, your chest is kind of being pushed in yeah, the air and everything's hanging off. But you weren't talking that one side of your mouth. No, but it kind of felt like oh, one okay. side was not oh. working. Right. But actually, what I think it was was the way that the blood was rushing to my head. And the heat, I was, I was below the heater, and I think it was getting more of one side of my face than the other. But there, there was, that sounds seriously traumatic. Also, what does it say about my brain that when I thought that maybe I'd done something to a nerve that had collapsed my face, I didn't Get turn up. around and say, I think I was more worried about looking like an idiot? Yes, and you thought the solution was to slap yourself. <laughs> Anyway, so that was that. And did but, you manage to haul yourself up again? Yeah, and then he goes, get off the block. And there was this point where I thought, you have to kind of roll off it. It's not very, doesn't look great. And I, as I was rolling off, I thought, this is this is like the defining moment of my life where I'm going to see if I my face is okay. And it was fine. Because <laughs> you slapped yeah. it back into... <laughs> anyway. it's oh, a happy end. So that, that was good. And uh, oh, another traumatic incident happened at Geraldine's house yesterday. So I went to Jez's apartment to pick up some food to eat because Kath is now helping me on my 5-2 diet and cooking mm. me an extra meal every week. Isn't that oh, nice? Yes, yeah. And yeah. I've got to work out how to pay her back. Uh, just with um, just love and appreciation okay. she likes. I'll, I'll do a shout else. out. <laughs> I know. I feel like I should actually do something good for her. Maybe I'll bake her cakes. But then Ooh. I feel like that's going against the idea of being, us all doing the 5-2 yeah, diet. Yeah, maybe. Mm, we'll think about it. All right. But I went to Geraldine's to pick up my meal and when I was there I went to her went to the toilet and the dogs were in a really fun mood and I knew that Lloyd is the kind of dog that would burst through the toilet door. Yes. Having met him many times, I thought he's going to want to come in, loves it. So I locked the toilet door. Oh, no. And then I 
when I was on the toilet, Lloyd launched. You did not lock, lock the toilet door. I locked the door. You did not. Lock I locked. I locked the door. I locked the door. I even checked it when I left. But Lloyd launched himself at the door <laughs> at such a rate that the door popped open, and it was just Lloyd standing in front of me when I was on the toilet, and I was so I was screaming at him. Oh, so I was in the kitchen, and all I heard this was Lloyd, I'm weeing. <laughs> I was like, get out. There's nothing worse than that. I was like, I'm on the to-go. <laughs> anyway, it was really upsetting. And, wrote, and, and Geraldine's got, it's a, like, it's a small apartment. So I yeah. also didn't know whether you were going to be standing in the room. <laughs> that's, that's that's fair. As Lloyd leapt through the but door. But I, I was in the kitchen far, far away. He, but, I don't know how he did it. He leapt through a locked door. <laughs> I reckon you just locked the door but did not close it. <laughs> Maybe that's possible. He's a very special animal, Lloyd. He is. Anyway, they're my two trauma that, events. Uh, they all happen like quite a traumatic week. Yeah, you probably got something worse. Come on. Give us some good trauma. <laughs> what have you got? I haven't. Oh, this, this, was, this was traumatic because it was so utterly predictable and I knew it was going to happen and yet I didn't stop it. I just allowed it to happen. Okay. You know when we were comparing our bikes and I was complaining about my bike lock and how it was all broken? Oh, yes. So what had happened, I've got to like... Jeremy's got this really fancy one. It's like mm. I, I, I'm super high tech. It extends out like it's gadget just, arms. Well, sure. Yeah, you make it sound more <laughs> fancy than it really is. But anyway, it's super like it's. What do you have? Just a I U, have an old U combination locks. lock. Okay, those those U ones are the hard ones. No, 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 no. Really, they're just the. No, no, just... Oh, the ones they can bolt cut through. Yeah, the ones they can bolt cut through. <laughs> the cheapest ones. Yeah, um, and it's just got a combination. I want another key, right? So. But it's been so bashed around that the numbers are all bashed off it. Oh. In fact, most of the face is bashed off it. So you can sort of see where it lines up because it's all bashed off because that's normally lined up in the one way, if you see right, what I mean. Right, yeah. But the problem is that means you can't actually see the combination to do the combination. So once you lock it, you often find that it takes forever to unlock it. Do you I see what I mean? I if you haven't bought a new lock by now. Well, you'd think so, wouldn't you? Because it's just one of those things like... It just became more and more difficult slowly, mm. like you do it the first yeah. time. And then th- suddenly that's just the way that you live now. <laughs> yeah, that's yeah. right. Suddenly it's taking you 10 minutes to unlock my, my bike. Anyway, I was in South Melbourne. I was going to a shop and I locked it up outside and I came back and I just couldn't. Oh, <laughs> I just, no. just could not unlock it. And that's where your bike lives now. <laughs> <laughs> oh, pretty much. So it's just, and also you look like you're trying to steal it because you're there fiddling around on the, the on on the lock and yeah. cursing it and yeah. banging at it and thinking, why didn't I just do this ages ago? <laughs> and eventually, at the end of it, I realised it wasn't actually locked on properly, and I could just untangle it from oh, my bike God. and take it off. Um, <laughs> so now so it's still locked. Not on. only that, someone could have stolen <laughs> it. It was completely useless. So it's still locked onto a pole somewhere in South Melbourne. If anyone's listening and you see it, you can have it. It's not very good. <laughs> is it really still locked on? Yeah, because yeah, he didn't. Lock oh, up the, his lock bike. Is. the lock is. Oh, yeah. even the bike no, is. No, oh, no. right. Okay. My God. You just. <laughs> Just you, just, you just locked up a, a chain around a tree <laughs> and then leaned your bike against it and walked away. <laughs> yeah, oh, that's so good. That's yep. pretty great. Uh, my trauma is uh, I was out doing some errands yesterday and then I came home and somebody had parked in my car park. Oh. <gasps> There was. Do you think it was revenge for me parking in your neighbour's car park yesterday? Yeah, that one's always fifteen minutes. That's always empty. And okay. that How clearly little... marked are they as a residence car park? Very clearly. Very clearly that you parked here. It's private. You get towed. Maybe cars... it says two towed or something. Yeah, they yeah. Say? Cars yeah. will be towed. 
and I was so annoyed because I got home and I, it was late in the afternoon and all I wanted to do was have a nap. That is, that is very and draining. And I couldn't because I had to – I parked next to it and I went, oh, well, I've got to make sure that no one – you know, that my neighbours don't come home and I have to explain to them why I'm parked in their spot. And then I've got to keep an eye out for whoever has parked their car oh. here. So I just opened up the blinds and I stood at my window no. and stared at the window. <laughs> and then... <laughs> oh, my God. Uh, so I just did that for, for, for a how while. How long? How long? Oh, uh, not that long. How- Ten minutes. Is there anyone you can ring if there's someone parked in that spot? Well, I thought about that and... I've got to find out. Did you, Did you kind of figure that was there something that they could obviously be doing? Like you think, oh, they're just, you know, somewhere close by, they're going to be back in 10 minutes? Or did we, well, I mean, how did you know thought, they weren't going to be there for like hours? I didn't know. That's why I was staring at the window the whole time. Did you consider letting annoyed. the tyres down? No, that'd make it worse. I, I considered writing out, uh, leaving a note oh. on the windscreen going, this is private. This is my private car park. <laughs> Don't you leave your car here. But I feel uh, like if that's written on the floor, on the, the road, they probably knew that. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I think they're but, probably taking a chance. Mm, so I stared out the window for a bit and then there was a, a guy that walked past, like an older guy that walked past and kind of looked like he was looking around for something and then he saw me <laughs> like just staring out the window <laughs> and went, oh. Whoa. Psycho. Yeah. <laughs> And then, and then a he, crazy lady from the yeah. downstairs <laughs> was, and then he kind of he walked past, and then about five minutes later, I'm pretty sure it was him that came back and really? got in the car. Did you yeah. miss, did you miss the moment where he came back? Yeah, because I, yeah, yeah, I did because I must have been uh, on my phone or something at, at one stage. But yeah, he came back and I saw I heard the car door open. I looked oh, and no. went, no, and I went round. Did you and, chase him down the street? No, no, no. He, they they just parked across the road. Oh, so I reckon it was him. Mm, I think so too. He saw your angry eyes yeah. peering out. I got him. <laughs> this is a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. Sponsors. Oh, mate, I have gone down a hole of Google searching horseshoe crabs. I know, how cool are they? They, look huh. like, they kind of look like stingrays. With They do, don't they? Yeah, yeah. but with shells. Uh, do we have them in Australia? Have they got a different name? I don't know. We have to ask Bugman. Do you think he knows about horseshoe crabs as well? I've gone into a hole searching for faces of Jesus. Yeah, oh, well, ha- I tried to do that as well. But quickly, can I can I say that I found that there's a, a picture of, of three dogs and their back legs aren't working so they're on like wheelchairs at the beach all checking out a horseshoe crab. It's pretty great. Oh. The end. But when you, oh, now I see what the crab is. Yeah, everyone should Google horseshoe crab if you don't know what it looks like. Can I just say before we yes. leave this that uh, the face of Jesus has also been found in an Ikea door. How did you – because I've been trying to find out where the face of Jesus has been found on, like, other animals and – it's been There's been one on um, grilled toast. Remember that one? Yes. That was oh, yeah. a really Many famous times. one. Yeah. On a, a marmite lid. A marmite? Hmm. Where's, oh, maybe I should just Google where's anyway, the face uh, of Ikea Jesus Ikea door, I think, found. is a good one. You go to Ikea, you w- wouldn't necessarily be expecting a religious like in, experience. on every Ikea door? No, just a particular one. It's in the wood grain pattern. Although oh. I wouldn't have seen it, said it was the face of Jesus. It looks more like so to that, one of the aliens in the, the early Space Invaders games. Oh, yeah, yeah. I see, but, that's the know. thing. Every time they see a face, it's always Jesus. Not. It's not Jesus. It's just... Like I, there was a, I found another one, a, a different crab that had. They said the face of Jesus, but I'm like, 
that looks more like Drake than it does Jesus. So oh. maybe that maybe maybe it's one in the same. So I hope they don't offend any Christians out there. Or or, or Drake, Drake fans. fans. <laughs> uh, anyway, speaking of um, freaks of nature and things that happen in nature, yesterday. Uh, I was uh, took the dogs out for a walk. Um, went down to Victoria Park. Lovely, hanging out down there, having a great time. It was such a nice day yesterday. It wasn't really it? was. Yeah. It was great. Also, Lloyd cannot handle Hoddle Street. He oh, he wouldn't be able to. Oh man, the traffic. Yeah, he and there's just, lots of works going on there at the moment too. That too. So he like waiting to cross Hoddle Street. Lloyd just is like on hyped up like he's crying and oh and I'm just like oh mate you can do this come on and then anyway he's fine but on the way back <laughs> Poor Lloyd. I know he's a special he's a very special dog and that's why I love him um on the way back I was walking back home and uh I, there was a bird just walking around on on the road <clears throat> and uh I looked at it and went oh there's a magpie because the tail feathers of a magpie but then it turned around and it was a pigeon Oh. It was half magpie, half pigeon. <laughs> oh my gosh, can you remember when my friend and I saw something that was half pigeon, half something else, and we asked Birdman if it was possible for them to copulate. I can't remember what it was. Oh. Maybe it was half. Because oh, I was really wish Birdman was coming. I, I reckon Where's Bugman Birdman? Might. Ask Birdman. Well, he's, I have been doing some research. Can on, they? Yeah, bird hybrids exist. But in nature? Or because we yes. no, but well, because oh. do we put, make like, them exist in a lab like freaks? N- no, uh, in nature apparently. Well, from my limited Google search, because <laughs> well, yes. when I asked Birdman this, he said it wouldn't happen. It'd be quite oh. uncomfortable. Maybe anyway, <laughs> it was like half, and then I was thinking about well, what would you call that? Oh. imagine. Oh. Mad, imagine. Oh, imagine. Imagine. Except. That is very smart. Thank you. Except, um, it, like, the top half was pigeon, though. Are you sure this is what you were seeing? Mate. I'll, oh, I'm I did show see. You. I saw a picture. Now I remember you putting a picture of a bird, but I didn't look at it very well. Look at that. So you go, I'll, I'll show you. I'll, I'll put this up. Oh, yeah, magpie. Pigeon. pigeon. There you go. See, Jeff, look at that. Magpie. Shh. Pigeon. So it's just I'll a pigeon with a white and black tail. But where have yeah. you ever seen a pigeon with a white and black tail before? It's very – I wish I could have – I know it's, it's a the, little bit blurry. The colour of garbage. Yeah, <laughs> exactly, exactly. It's all grey and stuff, but that is a perfect black and white tail feathers of a, of a magpie. I don't know. I feel like I'd be more impressed if it was like half pigeon and half some other kind half of animal. Half eagle. No, oh. like half dog. Oh, yeah, you just need – you can Google – What would you call that? <laughs> Uh, pog. Do- pig. A pog. A pog, yeah. A pog. Or yeah. the other thing, yeah. because the top half's pigeon, maybe it should be uh, pig pie. Oh, my God, pig pie is <laughs> so pie. good. Pig pie. Check pig my pig pie. But that kind of sounds like pigeon pie, doesn't it? Which I it think does. is a thing that exists probably somewhere. Yeah, maybe. Or or pig pie. But pig, pig, pigeon, pig, pig pie. Pig pie, I'm down. Pig pie, yeah, but that might just make you hungry. But... <laughs> But maybe if it was the other way around. And was it doing anything? Pigeon pie Imagine. would make anyone it, hungry. Did it do anything? Did it like behave like a magpie? Or? Well, did you chase it? No, I took, tried to take photos and then I realised there was a guy um, in a car waiting for me 
to move out of his driveway so he could run get over in the there. pitch pie. Yeah, no, the pitch pie went away. <laughs> See, pitch pie. I, I actually talked about that. I had a gig last night at Howler, um, uh, which is it was great fun. Um, but here's something I, I did not notice until last night. Maybe because I, when I came in, I'm used to walking to Howler when it's dark, like all the lights out, it's just the stage lights on and stuff. So, but when I first got there, lights were up. Could actually see the carpet. Do you know what I mean? Like a yeah. oh. green carpet in there. I had no idea. I didn't Stri- know it was green either. It Stri- Stri- like green and grey. I'm pretty sure. Anyway, it was like, oh, this is what this room is like. And then on, uh, up on stage, I know the there's like that big window next to it. Yes, we can sit in the bar and watch what's I going had on. No on stage. idea that there was a bar, like another side to that, or as oh. we call it, a crying room. Which is from from church. Yes. And, Jeff, you don't know about the crying room. I don't room. know about the crying room. Uh, okay, it does so say sound a bit sinister it does, but for a church to have a crying room. Just say, let's find out what Jeff thinks a what, crying room. Why do you think a crying room is at church? Yeah. And we've just described... Just back my tongue yeah. to think about all the things that... It could, I, I, I would think of some kind of punishment room, like if you've sinned. Okay. So, and you go in there and what? Do thirty cries. Yeah, you just got to cry while you contemplate, <laughs> <To repent laughs> contemplate all the sin you've done, mm-hmm. and how much you're going to go to hell. Right. So you just sit there and cry and cry and cry, and after you've cried for enough, the priest will let you out again. Okay. Close. Yeah, but, not, but no cigar. Wrong. Uh, Very wrong. A crying room. We had one up at our farm, so the church at our farm. We didn't have one in the city, but our it is a room that sits off to the side of the altar much like the stage at Howler and has it's a glass room and uh, if you were a children you would sit in that glass room and watch the ongoings the church what the was happening mm. mass through the glass so children should children be cry seen and not heard and not heard mm. so mm. ours was um, up the back oh was it yeah well oh, up the back sucks at least on the side, you got the best view of the yeah that exciting stuff. That was I, st- I still think it's a little bit unfortunate. Okay, so you say you're telling me it's basically a room for the they, kids to be in. They don't exist anymore because you could just. I mean, why didn't they call it the happy room or the well, the no, play it, room? It was just when the, you, like when your baby was crying, so yeah. you take it to the crying room. You take room. it to the crying room, and when we were mm. quite little, and Mum had a, a baby and other lots of little children, we were in the crying room. I think it was just too much for her to try and control us. Yeah, except when when my younger sister was born, uh, quite often you know she'd have to go to the crying room, but because there was so many of us. Like, mum wouldn't take us all in. Like, dad would... It would just be mum that would take ah. Fiona into the crying room. Or... But sometimes, like, I'd uh, I'd try and be the good older sister and be like, oh, mum, I'll, I'll take... I'll take Fiona into the crying room. Like, let me take her. And that was just a way of... I don't know how I managed it. Getting out of mass? Yeah, and just sneaking up the back and going into the crying room. But also in the crying room, <laughs> there was a, a wheelchair... I don't know why it was there. <laughs> Left over from someone just... had been put in there as a punishment. <laughs> I, th- I think it was just there in case, I don't know. You were like so a... overcome by crying you couldn't walk out. You couldn't walk out. Yeah, maybe. <laughs> yeah, Push that. you out. Or just, you know, people at church that, you know, instead of having a stretcher they had a, a, a wheelchair. People anyway. become, you can be easily overcome at, at church, don't you think, with <laughs> emotions. Sure, no, if you say so. But also I think a lot of older people... With, yeah, I don't, just get oh, too yeah, hot yeah. and they just yeah. overcome. Um, but also it's just... I, I don't know where this wheelchair came from, but it was great. 
and so I would go into the crying room and just hoot around on the wheelchair. Did you ever get in trouble for doing that? No, no, I was right at the, the back. No, I was looking. Oh, that's just, you know, get around. Up the, the back oh. is the key. No, yeah. I used to think it was good being on the side of the altar. Your well, crying room was the fun room. Yeah, it was fun. It's heaps of fun. Anyway, uh, but it was, but when, when you were talking about it at Howler, that is, but that's a dream of being up the front, being amongst it, but not being amongst it. Yeah, if you're not someone who likes touching or being in an audience, it's nice. You can just sit there and have a drink and observe and listen. Yeah. And also, here's another thing that I, uh, when I go to concerts and live music events, I'm not quite sure what to do. No one is. No one is. <laughs> yeah. That's the thing. Everyone is always saying, no one knows what to do. That is not just you. It's just no one talks about the fact that they don't know what to do. See, I want to talk about it. Let's talk about it because I don't right, know what to do. Let's bring it to the open. All yeah. right. Well, because, like, like, if I compare it to going to live comedy, live comedy you can go there, you sit and you laugh at appropriate times. Yeah. Um, and, but you don't have to, like, nod along to the jokes. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. there's no expectation that you respond immediately to yes. every moment that's happening yeah. on stage. Whereas in, in music it's like, do I, I don't, how, do I have to dance along to this? Like, oh. and you can kind of get away with um, chatting a bit during live music. Yeah, there is. I think that, or is that not on? It's not on. You can a little bit, but you don't want to be chatting to the point where no one can hear what's happening oh, on stage. Yes. So, yeah. and you kind of got to. Some people get. Depends what kind of show it is as well. Bit <laughs> on the, maybe I, the genre. Genre might determine. Genre it. would definitely determine. It. I think. Do you meant to just let yourself, your body, naturally respond? Wants. To the okay. music, and if it doesn't want to move, it doesn't want to move. That's okay, you know. Mm. But it's hard when you're around people. Sometimes I'm around people and I'm compelled to move because they're moving. Ah, the spirit takes you. The spirit takes you. Yeah. What do you do at a live? Ah, no, Jeff might. side bobs. <laughs> oh yeah, <laughs> you do that yeah, side yeah. to side. Do I? Yeah, yeah that's how you. Do, yes, how you. I wonder what that's from. Some sort of neck like, palsy or something. <laughs> I know yeah. most people that do the up and down nod. Yeah, no, but your, I, yours is to the side. I move to a different beat. You sure do. But uh, look, I to be honest, I find that with comedy more so because oh, you don't know what to do in comedy. No, because it's not it's not something like before. I was doing this show. It's not something I ever went to, mm. kind of very much. And I find myself well, like I'm there, and then maybe I don't think that particular joke was funny. Yeah. You know what I, I mean? Think and I think, oh, well, if I don't laugh, is that rude or is it like... Like when we went to that... Um, oh, boy. That really bad show that we saw. That was... Yes. Yeah, so Remember in the very early days yeah. of us doing this show, the, the first comedy festival, we went... Sarah and I went to the town hall. We just took the first flyer we saw. Yeah. Because we thought this would be a fun... I don't know why we did it. We thought it would be a fun thing to do. We're desperate for talk breaks. Yeah. <laughs> now, <laughs> now, let's talk about pitch, pitch pies. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and we ended up at this weird-ass little comedy thing where there was only about five people and we didn't really know the comedians or anything. No, and we were very close to the stage and the pressure to laugh at everything yes. that was coming out of the was immense. I found it very stressful. It was, and particularly when um, one of the comedians lost her place. Yeah. Do you remember? Yeah, And she had right. those notes that she brought out? Yeah. But like in most comedy things, though, it's quite obvious when the joke is. 
Do you know what I'm like? Even if it's yeah. most but of like, time, if it's good s- comedy, but like you, you meant to smile. Say when I saw your show, mm. I was front row. And mm-hmm. You're looking at me. I mean, I smile anyway because you know I, that's I, I would smile at you. Show, but like, you. do you? Yeah, but it's true. But but like, do you have to smile the whole way through the show? No, 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 no. If I'm, but just don't have, um, don't look bored the whole time. Well, what expression have you got on your face? What, what would you call <laughs> like that then? Blank. Well, don't stand. You know, don't sit there with your arms crossed, looking angry that you're there. Just, surprised? Yeah. Well, surprise is good. Just be open. You know, just be look attentive, like you're actually. You know, don't be looking around the Palms room. Palms up. Like you're doing um, Our Father. You know, that's how my mum used to do Our Father. I was so embarrassed at church. We all had to hold hands. Mum would put her arm, hands up. I don't think anybody wants you to do that at their comedy. That would be a bit off-putting. Here's, here's the other... Comedy, it's fine. You know, you just laugh at the when there's a joke. Or if you don't think it's funny, just go, oh, okay, that's... Just kind of, you know, pretend at least. No, pretend, pretend to be into it. Yeah, not judiciously. Put, put no, your, I, mm, put mm, your, I see the point that you're making. Yeah, I do not laugh. Yeah, put your palms out. Palms out for sure. But here's Calms the other, out for comedy. Here's the other one that I don't like uh, going to going to any sort of circus or acrobatic thing because I don't know when it's peaked. Ah, oh. oh. I agree. Because it's you too might, hard. It, you might you know. start applauding, but it might only be the start of the. Yeah. Yeah. Is the is the spinning through the air the bit or that, is that's it impressive? They... I've got and I'll, I'll clap at that. I'll yeah. go, wow, look at that. That's amazing. And then they'll do another thing, and it's like I've got nowhere else to go. Yeah. I've got nothing more. And then they stand there and then they go, come on, everybody, round of applause. I'm like, I've given it to you. I've got nothing left in the tank. I've clapped. I've gone, whoa, but there is nothing left. You, you. Did too much stuff too early. You know what you do? It's palms up. Palms up. Palms out. <laughs> this is a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne, truly independent community radio. Day Oz Comic Con Melbourne will be held at the Melbourne Convention Centre Convention Exhibition Centre this weekend. Among the many, many people appearing at the fest is the actor Corin Nebick, who you'll know from Stargate, Supernatural, and many, many other roles in a career stretching for decades. He's joining us now in the studio. Welcome to Breakfasters. Yes, uh, yes, thank you. You're looking. You're, you're already interrupting my social media time. <laughs> I'm trying to tweet about this incredible moment. And, and put us all down in, in, in Twitter history. It, no, no one will pay attention to it with all the anti-Trump uh, tweets going on and all the crazy political stuff. Twitter has become an absolute cesspool. Uh, but, uh, but, I, but I still find a way to, you know, uh, uh, clean house in my own little area. Uh, have, since you've been in Australia, have, been, have you been following the poo jogger story? What, what is that? Oh, the poo jogger? Did you say poo jogger? Yeah, they are the words that just came out of his mouth. Yes. <laughs> I'll, I'll, was he like jogging down the street and like dropping little loads around the around the city? Yeah, that exactly is like the, that. the lead story in Australia at the moment. That's amazing. <laughs> yeah. you've, you've I wish come... that was our lead story. I would actually watch the news if that was the case. Uh, you're well positioned to be appearing at Comic Con. Both your parents were artists. What kind of work did they do? How did that affect your career? Uh, in, in, it affected it in, in a lot of ways. Real quickly, yeah, my father, uh, Joseph Charles Nemec III, uh, my birth name is Joseph Charles Nemec IV, but uh, <laughs> my mom always wanted to name me Corin. They got divorced and she got her way, as women do, <laughs> as women do. And, uh, and so uh, I became Corin Nemec uh, as I was growing up. 
and uh, becoming a professional actor. And my mom was a graphic artist in the music business and theater business. So, I mean, I grew up going to see all kinds of bands backstage with Joan Jett and the Blackhearts and Hall and & Oates and Jay Giles Band and... Uh, uh, and the list goes on. All these bands that that uh, that no, none of this new generation has heard of, but yeah, uh, no, but, but I know a few of those. <laughs> yeah, I got, I got to meet them all. And uh, and then she went went into the theater business, and that's how I ended up in Los Angeles because she transferred with uh, the company she was working for, the Nederlanders, doing um, uh, uh, prom- uh, play posters in um, Fox, the Fox Theater in Atlanta, to the Pantages in Hollywood. So I ended up there and started acting uh, uh, shortly after that. And you starred in Parker Lewis Can't Lose in the early 1990s, which kind of was, looking back on it, the golden age of teen dramas. There were so many of great teen shows, like movies and TV at that time. What do you think was happening that produced so much sort of iconic kind of teen drama at that time? Well, I don't know. I mean, our, you know, our, our show, uh, although maybe there was a drama offset, it was a comedy uh, onset. But, uh, <laughs> but the, uh, and oddly enough that you mentioned that, um, the, uh, Rupert Murdoch had taken over Fox uh, after our second season. And when he, uh, when he had taken it over, they had a whole new uh, uh, list of executives they put into place over there. And they saw the ratings on 90210, and then looked at our ratings, which were which were you know not as not as powerful. And they wanted to kind of alter our show to fit more of the yeah, 90210 right. kind of vibe. And and our you know that's not what our audience was. So it kind of was the nail in the coffin of uh, of our runtime. So but we did seven to eight episodes in three years, which was quite a bit. And uh, and it's been it's had a you know a really cult following, uh, especially internationally. Over in Europe, uh, the the show ran on and on and on and on for several decades and uh and uh, you know so when i go over there i actually was was uh, one one of the last times i was in france i was uh I was petitioned by a homeless man for some change to buy him a beer, and then he stopped and in, and in a moment of clarity looked at me and goes, "Is your pocket Louis?" No, <laughs> and, awesome. and I was like, "There you go!" Wow, you know? <laughs> that is so excellent. You, 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 your CV says you did end up starring in Beverly Hills. Maybe was it a guest spot? Oh, I did a guest spot. I took, I, I, I stole all of Tiffany Amber Thiessen's money and got away with it. Oh yes, yes, I yes. love that you got to play one of the bad guy roles. What was it like being on a set as uh, iconic as Beverly Hills at that time when it was kind of at its peak? You know, I, I, I'm not sure because I grew up in the film business. I started acting professionally when I was 12. Uh, I got nominated for an Emmy by the time I was 16. Oh, whatever. For a miniseries I did called I Know My First Name is Steven. And uh, and so you know, I mean, it was just, but it's just part a part of my my whole you know life growing up. In fact, the the thing that I was more focused on because I, I was an artist outside of being an actor. I I got into graffiti art when I was about ten or eleven years old. I just I just released a uh, a, a novel, a fictional novel that's kind of based on my experience growing up as a graffiti artist in Los Angeles as a teenager, uh, called Venice High, uh, which is uh, published on Lulu Lulu.com. But uh, that that was uh, kind of a lot of my focus was trying to continue my passion outside of what I did professionally as a, as an artist as an actor and continue to still you know paint uh, at graffiti yards and stuff like that when I was growing up, which was really bizarre. And well, when you're like a teen heartthrob and really recognizable, and also trying to kind of be a bit 
you know, inconspicuous and, yes. and graffiti. I imagine that would be difficult at times. Yeah, yeah, it was. Uh, it, and I mean, because I, I still paint, I still am very active in that in that whole world. Are you going to do any? Melbourne's got a huge graffiti yeah, scene. Yeah, I've painted here uh, a bunch of times, oh, really? actually. Yeah, I've painted here, I've painted in Perth, I've painted in Sydney, yeah, I've painted right. in Adelaide, I've, I've gotten to paint in a bunch of cities here. Do you just sneak um, off from your duties? <laughs> <laughs> Shh, come on, don't blow my cover. Uh, uh, I generally have, uh, you know, have, because uh, I know a bunch of artists all over the world, so I usually just connect up with them and, and they arrange for, you know, the, the spots to paint. Or, you know, I have painted Hosier a few times, but it's sort of yeah. a waste of paint because, you know, uh, it just gets written yeah. all over. A lot of times by, you know, like 11 and 12-year-olds whose parents bring them down with a tin of paint yeah. just, to, just to write on stuff, you know. But, uh, but yeah, coming down I and mean, coming down for Oz Comic Con, it's a, it's a great opportunity to, to be able to uh, to meet a bunch of the uh, the fans down here, whoever's into uh, my, my acting side, and then also to be able to spend some time in the artistic community here. It's great. And so you grew up sort of steeped in hip-hop culture. I was reading one of your bios. At one stage, you worked with DJ Speed from NWA. Is that right? Oh, yeah, I did. I did a uh, uh, I did my uh, my first um, attempt at a, a rap. Uh, well, it wasn't really an album. It was more of just a kind of like three tracks to be able to shop myself around as a, as a, as a rapper. And then, uh, uh, oddly enough, a few years later, we uh, me and a group of guys that I was uh, that that I was working with at the time, uh, Balthazar Getty was our DJ, actually the actor uh, and musician, and we ended up doing an entire album that Motown financed uh, for. Uh, uh, for them, and unfortunately, it ended up getting shelled because our the head of A and R who who put us on, uh, she was uh, very badly injured in a car wreck and was never able to come back to work. So all her projects got shelved. But the rights reverted back to me. So I actually own the the first album we did. It was called Starship of Fools, Lost in the Year Two Thousand, which was so long ago now. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, but that was great, uh, and. Um, uh, I, I actually am hoping to to one day just kind of remaster it, digitize it, and put it out just for the hell of it. Uh, I think it would be a lot of fun uh, to do. And, and me and David Arquette, actually, we had a little rap group together when we were teenagers called 13th Floor uh, with Balthazar Getty. And I have, we found an old demo that we did uh, when we were like 17 or so. Wow. And, and it's up it's up on my uh, my uh, SoundCloud site uh, called The Madness, which is pretty oh, hilarious. It's kind I, of a Beastie Boys type of feel. I wish I had that <laughs> to play. Well, I- <laughs> didn't even know that. Um, uh, you've worked in TV for a long time, over many years. You've been in CSI, Smallville, Supernatural, many, many others. What's all kinds a, of stuff. What's the secret for maintaining such a long career? Don't say no. <laughs> 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 you know, if you get a job opportunity, just say yes and uh, make the best out of it. Uh, you know, for me, it's really about character. Um, I, I've More recently, it's also relationships. You know, I've made some decent relationships with producers and maintained those. We become friends and, and, and I work with uh, some of the same people quite a bit. I've been working uh, a lot with a director named Brian Skiba, um, in, uh, and we, we did a, um, a film that should be coming out next Easter called Rotten Tale, which is based on a graphic novel that's produced uh, that's uh, published by Source Point Press. And actually, I believe uh, the, the gentleman who sponsored me here, Gifts for the Geek, um, they have a, a, um, a comic book shop called Gifts for the Geek out in, uh, in Geelong, and I believe that they have copies of it there. But it's a crazy, crazy uh, horror comedy uh, about a man who's kind of like the fly, except I, I get bitten by a rabbit in my lab, and I slowly turn into a half-man, half-bunny. And uh, and it's it's really, really going to be something else. So they're, they're planning on releasing that um, at Easter. 
and uh, great timing enough next year. Yeah, yeah. I so. was reading about it. How do you prepare to become a murderous rabbit as an actor? <laughs> well, you eat a lot of carrots, yeah. <laughs> but you have to stay away from the cabbage because cabbage gives rabbits gas, and rabbits really? can't fart. I never knew they, this. Rabbits cannot fart. They Did, don't have the ability. The so it's terrible for them. It's, it's absolutely awful for them. <laughs> As you said, you are out here for Oz Comic Con. What do people, when people come to meet you and have a photo with you, what is the character or the film or the part that they are generally most excited about? Is Or is it a bit of everything? It's, it's a little bit of everything. Ma- mainly it's uh, it's the the character that I played in, in Stargate. Because uh, Stargate is such a, it's got such a massive following, uh, you know, that just is, it's really mind blowing. Um, and then uh, the character I played in Supernatural, because uh, I, I was one of the relatives of the uh, the Winchester boys, those those hunky, yeah. those two hunky <laughs> chunks of man. Uh, and um, and then also the stand, the miniseries, the stand has a real cult following. Uh, I had a really fun character in that, uh, the Stephen King miniseries. Um, and then of course Parker Lewis, uh, that has a really po- a big pop culture following. In fact, later in the year they're doing a, um, a convention in uh, in in France, Paris Manga. They're bringing me, the two best friends, uh, the the giant bully and the sister, all from Parker Lewis, to go to a big Parker Lewis reunion. God, I remember the giant over bully. There. Yeah. Kubiak. Yeah. 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 Eat now. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> what is, I guess you'd have a lot of people then request. Do you have any weird requests by fans? Is there anything that makes you uncomfortable or you're pretty relaxed about well, fandom? Well, I'm pretty relaxed about it. You yeah. know, uh, but some of them, it's, it's when they say, let's do a silly pose. That kind of always throws me off because I'm like, you know, I don't, I, what, what silly pose should we do? It's just, they really catch me off guard. I'll, I'll, you know, so I have to go back to my old improv skills uh, ah. from when I was uh, doing improv as a teenager uh, in, a, in a children's improv group called Off the Wall. We performed at the Laugh Factory Comedy Store, a bunch of places. You had to be under 18 oh. and, a, and, and 13, between 13 and 17. Yeah. Uh, yeah, so, and we would do, you know, all the, all the usual uh, improvisational, um, you know, routines and stuff, but we were all kids and it was, it was wild. Do, do you think... Um TV has changed much over the time you've been involved. I mean, we often hear people talking about a golden age of TV and the sort of centre of gravity's swung away from Hollywood and more into... Well, actually, HBO series and so on. Well, yeah, but I mean that's still Hollywood. I mean, it's I think that in terms of golden age, where where you only had you know four basically four primary networks once Fox you know evolved, uh, th- that was it, it simplified kind of things. There wasn't you know it, it, the uh, and there was also a lot uh, less competition it seems. But now um, you know I think we're really more in the golden age now than ever because there's so many different platforms it offers so many uh people an ability to to elbow their way into um uh film and television in a way that has never been possible before because there's so many different outlets so there's more work there's more uh work for writers uh uh, directors producers actors than there ever has been before in the history of 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 tv and film so in in certain ways it's really good but uh but granted that the big the big agencies in LA right now I kind of have a monopoly on everything. They package everything, uh, and uh, and so now there's a there's kind of a backlash happening, especially from the Writers Guild in, in Hollywood to to kind of try and break those monopolies because they because they are squeezing everybody out and they're consolidating their power on all of these shows. So it's it's pretty wild what's what what is happening. Oz Comic Con is on this week on weekend at the Melbourne Convention and Exhibition Centre. Uh, is a particular time people should come down if they want to 
I, I, these conventions are fantastic for a lot of reasons. Um, they, it's great for, for families uh, to go to these, ev- these events because the kids, it's got everything that the kids are into. You know, the majority of these events always have a gaming section. They have all the collectibles. Uh, you know, then there's, the, then there's the artist alley where all the, you know, comic book artists are all, you know, displaying their work and you can get, you know, personalized work from them, autographs from them. Plus the, uh, the actor's alley where you find a bunch of different actors from different shows you might have enjoyed over the years. And uh, and it's a really family friendly event. Granted, some of the cosplay might be a bit suggestive, but uh, you know. But if your kid's just turning thirteen, it's a perfect way to introduce him to tight spandex and busty uh, outfits. Adult themes. <laughs> We've been talking to Colin Nimick. Thanks so much for coming in. Yeah, my pleasure. Absolutely. Today, Pandas 3D is a film showing exclusively at IMAX at the moment. It traces the giant panda conservation efforts taking place at China's Chengdu Giant Panda Base. And it features the work of panda conservation specialist, Dr. Jake Owens. He's joining us now. Welcome to Breakfasters. Thanks. Great to be here. Thanks. For those who haven't seen the film, unlike Sarah and I, who saw it the other day, (laughs) tell us about the giant panda base in Chengdu um, province. What it is it and what happens there? So the panda base is a um, basically it's it's kind of like a big zoo that only has giant pandas and red pandas, and um, so we have about a little over hundred of each of those animals. And um, long story short, uh, pandas were having a rough time in the wild. Uh, there's a lot of habitat loss and and a lot of habitat fragmentation, so they can't move from one area to another if something bad happens where they live. And back in the seventies. Um, bamboo, which everybody knows pandas eat a lot of bamboo and they need that. Uh, when, when bamboo flowers, it all dies off. And so an entire mountainside will be absent of bamboo. So then normally, you know, 10,000, 20,000 years ago, the pandas could just move to another mountain and eat all the bamboo over there, but they couldn't do that. And so start taking them into captivity, including places like uh, the panda base eventually came to, became the panda base and now they have this nice big flourishing captive population and so the focus is kind of switching to p- protecting the wild and also moving individuals from captivity into the uh, the wild environment and that's the focus of my work and also the focus of this film listeners will probably have noticed you don't have a chinese accent you have an american accent yeah. how did you end up working in the giant panda base so I've worked all over the world. I actually got my start in Australia, which is awesome. And um, I, wor- I worked here 12 years ago before I did my PhD. did my PhD in West Africa, studying primates and uh, all these other species. And when I was finishing that, I got a phone call from someone who knew what my expertise was, which is about field work and uh, observational behavioral work and conservation. And he called me and said, hey, do you want to go and help develop this reintroduction program for giant pandas in China? I said, yeah. Yeah, right. <laughs> yeah. Before that point, had you met a panda before? I had, that makes sense, I had you seen know? a panda once in, in uh, the National Zoo in, in D.C. and um, when I was a kid, and that, that was it. Um, you know, for, for conservation biologists, it's not about the species. It's about the questions and about the, the techniques and, and about problem solving. Yeah. And so, you know taking something from one species or area into another that's that's really what it's about so most a lot of conservation biologists will will switch dramatically between different species different areas around the world and and still have a lot of success because you're taking knowledge from all over the world yeah right in the film you do it, it focuses on the efforts to get 
pandas back into the wild. And you do this by looking to a man in the US who's been yeah. doing the same thing with black bears. Could you talk a little bit about that and what you learned from that yeah, situation? Yeah, sure. Yeah, so the, the method we use is, is seems a little strange if you don't know that much about um, reintroduction programs or you're not really involved in it. So uh, everybody thinks if you want to release an animal, you have absolutely no contact with the animal. You try to avoid it. You put it walls, you know. Um, but uh, Dr. Ben Killam, he's in New Hampshire. He's released over 160 American black bears by uh, hand raising them. So their mothers died or, or abandoned them because of logging or whatever. He gets these small bears, uh, hand raises them inside his house with his sister and wife, and then brings them outside after the winter and then um, kind of chaperones them on these walks into um, larger enclosures and then eventually into the wild. So he'll go out on walks every day outside. You know, through the environment, he'll meet wild black bears. They'll have some social interactions with them. They'll see, you know, what's out there in the wild where they're going to eventually live. And then after a couple of years, when they naturally leave their mother, um, they'll either let them go from his yard and they'll stay in the, the, the area or move off somewhere else, or the state will relocate them to another, you know, area of the state where they need more bears. And, um, and so we're taking that as a model. But that, that, that kind of um, model has been used for a lot of other species too. There's a, another IMAX film, Born to be Wild, that the directors of this one, uh, Drew, Fel- Drew Feldman and Dave Douglas, made on orangutans and elephants. It's, and it's almost the same project, you know, yeah, but it's just yeah. different species in different places all over the world. So, Because the climatization effort depends on you gaining the trust and developing a relationship with the animals, much of the footage of the film features you frolicking, we might say, <laughs> with, with various pandas yeah. at various sizes. Yeah. So tell us something about that. What are they like as animals? Are they smart? Do you say they've got much going on? The sort of stereotype you have of pandas is that they're kind of, how should I put this? Dumb, dumb. lazy. Yeah. It's wrong, yeah. yeah. No, I, you know... I, it's really interesting to work so closely with with a species and so many different individuals. One, they're super smart. Um, I've had dogs my whole life. I grew up with dogs, and and they pick up training things. So at Panda Base, train them for you know moving to different areas or taking blood. Uh, we do really minimal amount of training just so we can change their GPS collar and also draw blood so we can check the the panda's health and hopefully continue doing that for the next 20 years when they're in the wild um they can pick up things like once you tell you show them how to do something and they'll just keep on doing it after that you don't need to you know retrain that that uh activity um so very smart they have really unique personalities um and one of the funny things is the males and females tend to to be very different the the males are, are kind of Totally playful, really, really fun, but also annoying because all they want to do is play, 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 play and bite you and bite you and bite you. <laughs> and the females are, are much more independent. Um, you know, they're, they're much more keen to just climb up a tree and hang out up there and eat some some bamboo off by themselves. And then when they want to, they'll come over and, you know, start playing with you a little bit. And then if if maybe you do something, you know, they're done playing and you're still trying to play with them or something, they'll bite you and then walk away. It's really, really wow. interesting, the dichotomy between the... the the sexes. Do you ever get uncomfortable? Because in in the movie, it's so there's so many great scenes of you just wrestling with pandas, but you do explain that as they get older, it gets a little bit more difficult to play with them, even though you need to continue that interaction. And you learn 
Did I, how do I say jujitsu? Jujitsu, that's right. <laughs> yeah. To be able to know how to wrestle with a panda, essentially. Yeah. So you know, when they're when they're little, they want to play all the time. And the way that we do our interactions is that we let the pandas drive them. And so we, you know, I don't. When we go into the enclosure, we don't walk up to them. We just kind of walk in. And if the panda wants to come up to us, um, you know, we let them. If they want to climb on us, we let them. And we engage in that to build a trust. But if they just want to hang out, then that's they do their thing. But as they get older, they just don't want to play as much. And so, you know, a two-year-old panda still wants to play, and but it can be, you know, 50 or 60 kg yeah. and big teeth, big claws. And um, so I'll still do some mount. But then once they get a little older than that, they don't really want to play very much. So Chen Chen now, she's almost five, and she tolerates us. We can check her collar. We can check her health and get blood and stuff. Um, but it's only a couple minutes of a day that she'll kind of tolerate us. The rest of the time, she wants to be by herself eating bamboo. They're primarily solitary in the wild anyways with other bears. And so that's kind of how she treats us as well. Yeah, right. Pandas are, of course, superstars of the animal world. I mean, in the film, we get kind of a glimpse of that, the, 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 the sort of media interest yeah. in pandas in China. And also, is there a danger that the efforts directed at animals like pandas that are so photogenic and so popular can overshadow conservation efforts for the less attractive, for less, you know, the little worms or the, yeah. you know, rats or whatever. Sure. Uh, pandas are, that. sure, that can happen. Um, but pandas are not a case of that because uh, there's been a lot of uh, research and some really good papers about how much um, other life there is where pandas live. So pandas uh, live in, in this area of China and Sichuan province and, and, and a little bit into other provinces uh, in southwest uh, China that has some of the highest levels of biodiversity and endemism, meaning you know they're only found inside that area of, of China, and also rarity. So you've got a ton of rare species that only live in China and just a massive amount of them. And so anything that you do to protect the habitat and, and um, the area that pandas live in is going to help protect a lot of other species that aren't found anywhere else and are also very threatened. Um, like, there, for example, there's just one snake. I like snakes a lot. And uh, so there's this one snake that it only lives on five mountains within the range of giant pandas. And um, in working with Chen Chen at this reserve, I found three of them and they're critically endangered and they're just really, really hard. I mean, nobody's ever heard of them unless you you know, study snakes or in that area. And I found three of them. And so if that habitat wasn't there for pandas, then those snakes wouldn't be there. They wouldn't exist. And that's a lot of other species are like that, but nobody cares about them because they're snakes or they're yeah. you know, some worm or something. Not so lovable. Yeah. Not going to be frolicking with a snake. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, I would. <laughs> that's another movie I've seen. Um, you've yeah. mentioned Chen Chen a few times. Who is the panda that you, yeah. uh, in the, the film, focuses on as you yeah. try to work to get her back into the wild? I was so taken by your relationship with her, which almost seems human-like. There is a scene where you have gone back to America uh, and you, while she's in the wild and then she goes missing essentially or you, you can see you're tracking her and you can see that she's unwell and you rush back yeah. to China and you seem to feel this guilt and your, your yeah. response is very human-like. What is that personal relationship like, I guess, with pandas? Yeah, you know, I don't, I don't have kids and it's not something yeah. I'm looking for at this point, but this is definitely the closest thing I've had to that kind of relationship that, you know, my brother and sister have kids and I see that that kind of relationship. And so, uh, you know, I, I raised Chen Chen or helped raise Chen Chen since she was a really small panda. And, and then she's now a large adult panda. And so it's been to help her go through that transition and also 
you know, not only do I care about her as an individual, you know, animal, as just like we're all animals, I care about her as an individual animal, but she's also represents, you know, kind of a a greater thing in terms of the conservation of a species. Um, And, and so, yeah, there's, it's it's a huge amount of pressure and it's also a huge amount of attachment between us. And, you know, I, I hope that she goes out and at some point she's just doing her own panda thing and I almost never see her and she's, entirely on her own having babies and interacting with wild pandas and I can change her GPS collar and make observations but she's doing it all on her own and I, I think we're getting there we're, we're, we're close to that point um, but it's going to take time it, it seems like such a in- incremental wins when you, yeah. when you when you watch this film do you feel hope for the future of pandas I guess you wouldn't be doing this if you didn't <laughs> yeah. but do you know what I'm mean? like yeah. do, 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 it's, it's, sometimes you look around at all these stories that are coming about about global warming can yeah. get a bit bleak, but exactly. how do you feel? So I, one of the reasons I, I chose to work on this project was not because of pandas. I mean, there are lots of really cool animals out there. Pandas are cool, but there's lots of really cool animals out there. But with pandas, there's such a, a focus on them, but there's also a real chance for success because um, the people care. We have so much public support. People love pandas. I mean, and you don't have that with lots of other species. Um, you also have a ton of support from the government. I mean, there's a, there's a real mandate from the government to, to protect these, this species. And they've been doing it for so long and had success um, that it could be the success story um, where there aren't a lot of success stories in conservation. And by doing it for, for pandas, we're also protecting all these other species and a huge amount of habitat. So... Yeah, I mean, I, I was drawn to it almost entirely for that specific reason yeah. because I could actually make a difference, you know. The film is Pandas 3D. You can catch it at IMAX. We've been talking to the biologist and one of the stars of the film, Dr. Jake Owens. Thanks so much for coming in. Thanks a lot for having me. This has been a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. Want to hear more? Check out our website at rrr.org.au.